Hey church, Pastor Adam here, and I want to say thank you so much for stopping by to join us for Church Online today. And, and while we are super stoked that you're hanging out with us this morning, we do want to remind you that really this is just it's supplemental. And man, it just cannot replace the local church in your life. And so look, we hope that you are encouraged and, and challenged and shaped by today's message that's being preached. Uh, but, but also, we don't want to be uh, your substitute. Uh, for the local church body that you should be involved in. We really do believe that the local church is God's plan A in reaching the world. So with that being said, please come hang out with us in person uh, one Sunday. If you're in Paducah in the area, come hang out with us to get some rest or find a local Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching church that you can get plugged in and connected to. Uh, Jesus loves the church and and we love Jesus and, and we believe that we can better serve uh, Jesus, if we love his church well. So, welcome to rest. Good morning, everybody. Morning. Hey, a little bit of life in here. So, this first little section is going to be for free because during worship, the song, throne room song, gets me every time, every single time. And I can't help but think of this passage in Daniel chapter 7. And I'm going to share, look, this is not planned, this is all during worship, but in Daniel chapter 7, there's, there's a lot happening, there's a lot of metaphorical things happening, there's just a few snapshots of what I want to say. So starting in verse 9, Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and a thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000, pretty much just an, uh, a number that was not equatable, a hundred million stood before him, and the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And then you skip just a little bit of a section and in steps Jesus. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so when we're singing that song, like, man, if you can just for a moment separate yourself from what Jesus has done for you, which is wonderful and beautiful, but I'm talking about just to see him and that day when he, the crown is placed upon his head and every wrong that you have ever encountered in your life will be made right because the king has been crowned and is on his throne and just deserves worship, not for what he's done for us, but just because of who he is. What he's done for us is even greater. It's even more. It's part of what we're going to get into later on in our text today. But just to see the king in his glory on his throne the way it should be, and it's just like as that crown sets down, it's just like everything that has ever been made will fall into place exactly as it should. So, 
That's extra. So, now if I can collect myself a little. So we're going to recap from where Pastor Cody was at last week. Briefly. Those of you that are kind of walking with us a little, maybe you're new, maybe you've been here a while, but we are going through the book of Romans at rest speed. That's even an oxymoron by itself, right? So, um, but we like to chew, we like to digest, we like to really, really dive in. And so we are in the second week of just beginning in chapter three, and we're in, we've split Romans into buckets. So right now we're still in bucket two, which is we have dubbed the saints and the ain'ts. Well, whatever. So we know that right now we're the Apostle Paul, the, the apostle that's writing the book of Romans. We know that he is addressing the Jews or the religious people in the church at Rome. So there's, there were Gentiles or Roman people who never grew up in the Jewish culture. They did not have any of the Jewish traditions. Um, they are in this church as well as Jews who were brought up in the, in the old way, in the old covenant, who studied the Torah their entire life, who've came up and they have their own understanding. Now they are professing Jesus while living in this church and being part of this church but they have a lot of theology that's really messed up. And so Paul's really addressing the Jews in that church. And so we learned a lot of things last week. We learned uh, one of my favorite things was Cody's impression of the office with Michael Scott back and forth, you know. Uh, but, but there is some truth there because the dialogue of the way the Apostle Paul's doing this is he'll take the, what we're gonna get into today is he's gonna take the objector and he is interjecting and anticipating questions that he knows their hearts are already asking, and then he's going to go ahead and come in with the answer. So we learned that last week. We're going to continue on in that same dialogue style this week. But we also learned that the Jews, like I was saying, they, they, they had this idea that they were important just because of who they were, because of where they came from, because they grew up in church their whole lives. So they had this idea that like what he's saying really doesn't pertain to us. We have our own little secret squirrel club over here and well, he's, he's talking to all these other people. And so we learned that the Jews believed that they had a special position with God because we can all, everybody that's read the book knows that the Jews are God's chosen people, the Israelites are God's chosen people. We know that. But they believed that they, were, they had a special position with God that yielded them special privilege. And what the Apostle Paul is really trying to tell them and teach them is that you do have a special position, but it's because of a special responsibility. And we learned, which was a solid, solid quote, but we learned that responsibility is always the other side of privilege. Every time. And we learned that even though some of the Jews throughout the years, which we can read about them in the Old Testament, there's lots of them, all of them, some of them were really, really unfaithful with that special position. And we learned that even though they were unfaithful with the promises and the covenants and everything that they had been given to manage, we realized that even though they were unfaithful, that God is always faithful. 
And we learn even that if every human, if every one of us in this room, if every human that has ever existed decided to all get together and formulate a cause against God and to declare him unrighteous, untrue, unjust, whatever, whatever you want to throw at him, that if all of us together teamed up against him, that he would still, in his divine power, prove that he is right, that he is true, and that he is just, and that all of us collectively together are liars. And we learned my favorite walking away point from last week that we're going to use again today. And the worship team didn't even know I had it hid here. Ha ha! What we really learned is that it's not about you. The book's not about you. Jesus came for you. But it's not about you. So today before we read the text. I'm going to highlight a few things first. Like I said, we're going to get back into this same dialogue where Paul is bouncing back and forth between a man-centered objector and a God-centered, Christ-exalting, theology-saturated answer. And so we're going, to, we're going to bounce back and forth between that stuff a little bit more today as well. And we see that he's, he what he's doing in the first few verses is that he's anticipating. He knows, that he knows the heart of, the, of these Jews that are in the church at Rome, and he's already, in, I mean, and there's Holy Spirit leading him in that, but he's anticipating their heart and what they're going to say and how they're going to, how they are going to form opinions and thought processes on this doctrine of grace that he is teaching. And so he's already anticipating it, and I love the confidence in that because he's, still, he's essentially saying, like, look, I know the truth, I know what you're going to say about it, and it's still true. Because, why, church? It's not about you. So we're going to pray, and then we'll get into the text for today. Lord Jesus, Thank you so much just for what it means to get to publicly set in a church with other believers that nobody in this country is condemning us for, that we don't have to face jail time for. Jesus, just some of the small things that you have given us in this church, in this country, in this city, right where we're at, that we take for granted, Lord, I pray that you would show us today the power of your grace in what we've been given here in that how, how fortunate we are and how powerful it is to just be here. It's not a regular Sunday. It's not just another church on a corner of the Bible Belt in Paducah. But Lord, you've, you've, you've given us the ability to come together and to love each other and to grow together and to grow toward you. And I pray that you would help us do that today, that you would... Help divorce us from our own thoughts and our own emotions and that you would help us to see you with your perspective. And I pray just as the word is taught that you would please come in and bring life to it. That there, there's just the power that comes from you is the only thing that can sustain us no matter how good or bad the teaching is, Lord, it's all got to come from you. And you know, the, 
You know the prep was there. I know the prep was there, Lord, but if you don't show up, it, it, it's just words. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, you would show up and that you would just be our God and that we would be your people. And I ask also that at this time that I might decrease and that you would increase. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you have a Bible, we're going to have it on the screens, but if you have a Bible, there's something, something good and tangible about having it in your hands. There's ones on the seats in front of you if you don't. But we are going to take off in Romans chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 5. All right. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So ultimately what Paul's doing this morning in this text, he's really going for the jugular of this argument right off the bat. He's just, he's nipping it in the bud. He's, he's going right for the kill shot. And he's saying, we see here that the Jews are trying to use their knowledge and heritage, again, as a special privilege to the fullest extent. They're trying everything they can to dance around and rationalize and, and to get away from having to repent and turn away from their sinful mindset. Because we know that sin will do anything to stay alive, right? Anything. They're trying to use logic and crafty thinking to avoid the confrontation of the gospel. And Paul is pressing into the root of their sin, of their heart. And he's just eliminating excuses like plucking feathers off a chicken. That's what he's doing. He's just stripping away everything they can. And we, we see that he's really left them with really two options. Either try to rationalize your way through what I'm saying and figure out how it doesn't equate to you, or you have to repent. And we see here by the end of the text that they were literally slanderizing and, slander, slandering and putting words in Paul's mouth, teaching, saying that Paul is teaching falsely and misconstruing his words. So we know really where they're going. We, know, we see that they're gravitating toward rationalizing. <clears throat> so we're going to dig in verse by verse here and talk about it. So in verse 5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. See, Paul, again, we, we already discussed a little bit of it, but he was using these questions to anticipate how their unrepentant Jewish heart and mindset, he, he's, really, he's really using this to anticipate how they're going to react and to go ahead and answer the questions before the reader even has a chance to ask them. And the question's really posed in this way. If the Jewish people's imperfections and sin serve to prove how perfect and good God is, and it takes supernatural power and grace from him for them to repent and turn to him, then why should God be considered unfair and unrighteous to still inflict wrath? And see, the very focus, the very heart that would cause you them to ask this question is man-centered. 
it still wants to view the righteousness of God through the lens of what he does or doesn't do for me. It still views, a, it, still views it that way. It's just, a broken, it's just a broken way to look at it. And that makes me want to ask a question. How many of us struggle to have a view of God apart from what he does for us? Who's ever struggled with being more in love with the gift rather than the giver? So I know I, know I struggle with it. I can, I can be as transparent as anybody. I struggle with all sorts of things. But that one's a big one. There's sometimes where you look so much to the grace that I forget to look at just the beauty of the one giving it. The Jews are here using this thought pattern that if God is the one who brings repentance, then how can he condemn me when it doesn't happen? That's really what they're saying. And that's a tough question. And in reality, even though our unrighteousness does biblically have part in displaying the righteousness of God, at the end of the day, church, we are still the clay. He is still the potter. What God chooses to do with his grace in a regard to a world completely full of wicked and unjust people is completely in his control and in his omnipotence. And that's just how it is. We all deserve his wrath and judgment. Every one of us in here, everybody listening to my voice, everybody that will, we all deserve it. But even though we deserve it, even if that were our fate, he's still righteous, he's still good, he's still omnipotent, he's still wonderful, he's still beautiful. And in every judgment or decision that he makes, he's good. Even if we don't understand it, right? Because it's not about you. We have nothing to do with his character or his righteousness. The book, his character, his righteousness, that's his copyright. We don't get to touch that. We don't get to touch that. We don't manipulate him. We can't change him. He is who he is. And so this morning, as we continue to dig in, I really, really just want to make sure that our first focus today is on his character and on who he is. The fact that he has grace for any of us at all is really what makes it amazing like the song we've all sang a hundred times in our life. It's really what makes it amazing. And we just have to have reverence for that. We have to have reverence that God is who he is and he's unchangeable. And a little bit of that I'm gonna lead into, we're gonna jump four years in advance here and go to Romans 9 for just a few minutes. Verses 15 and 16 For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Church, we really don't get the luxury of questioning God this way. We must recognize that whether we are Jew or Gentile, male or female, tall or short, that his grace again belongs to him alone. It belongs to him alone. 
And Paul, at the end of this verse, you see that little clause where he throws in, I speak in a human way. And he's really wrapping up that verse to clarify to the reader, like, hey, I realize how messed up the heart is behind this question. I'm asking this for a teaching purpose. I'm, I know I'm speaking this from a human perspective and in a human way. And Paul feels the need to clarify that. So we move to verse 6, where is where he immediately answers his own question. He answers it with a by no means. Now, when you really dig into this by no means, it is an emphatic, resounding no. No. By no means. God forbid, no. It is a no. As emphatically as he could write it on ink and paper, it is a no. And he uses the back half of this question for then how could God judge the world to reach back and relate back to that Jewish mindset that he was talking about and anticipating his question in verse 5. Because when he uses that, the word world there, he's really talking about everybody else that's not Jewish. So he's kind of pulling them in and he's saying, hey, you know, if, if what I'm saying is untrue and God's not just, then how's he going to judge everybody else? We see here, well, we know from the, the Jews, even, even the ones that were listening to him as he taught and as they read this letter, that were the Jews he was talking to today, this, on this day. We know their hearts are all tangled up. And what he's saying here, he's really using a part of truth that they do know. They, the Jews, would all absolutely agree with the fact that God is going to judge the world. They all know that. They learned that from the time they were young up until the time they read this, they read this letter from Paul. They all knew that. So Paul's bringing them in with that. He said, well, we know he's going to judge the world, right? And he's essentially saying... The rest of the world, the Gentiles, they didn't get the written law. They didn't get the promises. They didn't get the covenants or the patriarchs or the chance to repent, just like the Jews were questioning in verse 5. But somehow the Jews, the people he's talking to, have always believed that God's wrath and judgment on the rest of the world would be just. So what makes his wrath justifiable on one group of sinners but unjustifiable on the other. And we go back to what Paul was really teaching them this day is, you know, we've been watching him really kind of break down all their strongholds of who they were and that they were in church their whole life. And just because you have the book and the promises, just because you have all the tools, doesn't mean you belong to Jesus. And he's just continuing to build a case that the Jews and the Gentiles, when it comes to that, are no different. You can't expect God to judge. You can't expect him to be a good judge and judge my heart differently than he's going to judge somebody else's heart. No? So we move on to verse 7. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. 
Paul's using a lot of the same logic and teaching he used here in verse 5. And then he's emphasizing the same points again to really drive home the effect. The more I study the Apostle Paul, the more you see that a lot. He will say the same thing in, in a slightly different manner to rake, to rake in just a few more people, a few more listeners to relate to other people. And so essentially it's saying if God receives more glory when we sin and repent, then why is he still condemning me? If my sin and lies prove to make his righteousness and truth look even better, then why would I still be punished while I'm making God look good? Well, I got an answer for that, church. Does anybody know it? It's right there. It's right there. Because when we put our eyes on us and what God does for us, we lose the picture of who he is and the power that he has that he dwells in. So we see them taking that idea even farther in verse eight. And they're taking Paul's teaching and twisting it and actually putting words in his mouth and slandering it into saying that we should intentionally perform evil that good would come. They're essentially saying like, well, if God, if God is so forgiving and God's, if, if what you're saying is true, well, then that means I can go over here and I can just wreak havoc and, and do all kinds of stuff and then God's gonna have to step in and force his hand to make good things happen. That's essentially how far they had taken Paul's teaching of grace and twisted it and contorted it. And we really see here that um, Paul does get into a little more explanation of that in Romans 6, but we see here really, he just cuts off the argument. He really just chops it off. He's like, look, like, that's why he says their condemnation is just. He's just, I believe he's really saying like their heart is so far away from anything that I'm trying to teach here. It's so far away. I'm just, it's gonna have to be a work of the Holy Spirit. I'm just gonna give them over to the Lord and let him deal with them, whether that's judgment or he convicts their hearts, but they're too far away for my explanation to mean anything for them. I really believe that's what he's saying there. And they're really revealing the status of their heart and that they believe themselves to be in control. They're saying that Paul's picture of grace shows that in a backward way, we can control the manifested goodness of God by doing evil so that he'll, force to, he'll be forced to respond with good. That's really what they're saying. It's like saying that the dead marionette puppet laying on the stage is really the one moving his arms and controlling the puppet master up here and making the puppet master's arms move. And we all know it doesn't work that way. But this can really apply in a lot of different areas. Like how many times has somebody in here thought, well, I'm sure God's not going to be very good to me this week because I've messed up so bad. Okay? That's a different version of the same thing. That's saying my actions and abilities control him. Doesn't work that way. And I, you, can, you can take that in a lot of different ways and a lot of different, you can put a lot of different coats on that mannequin. But it really comes down to, again, we don't manipulate God. God is good. God is just. God loves us. We're gonna continue into that. Like Pastor Cody said last week, we feel like the, this first three chapters of Rome is just beating us down and beating us down, but it's coming, it's coming toward the end of this chapter. 
But we see, we see here um, that Paul's just dealing with a mindset that's far, far gone. So how, how does Paul, teaching to specific Jews in a specific time for specific reasons at this specific church 2,000 years ago, how do we relate that to us today? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to get into that too. But the biggest thing is to, is to really recognize, like at, at rest, we are very, very, very sincere and diligent about understanding the original writer, who he was originally writing to, what was going on in the culture at the time, the overall picture of the context. We, we painstakingly research to make sure that we take the original context of the scripture serious. But it's wonderful to know that God's word is so powerful and so omnipresent that what was for a specific people group at a specific time in a specific place back then can still be somehow in God's majesty for a specific time, a specific people group in a specific place today. And so this first section, I'm really going to talk to the believers in the room. It really comes back to the root of what Pastor Johan started two weeks ago and what Pastor Cody touched on last week is that God is concerned with your heart. God wants your heart. He wants the intention behind your life. He wants everything. He wants, he wants to be the God of your situations, of your provision, of your fulfillment, of your purpose, of your validation. And when we look to him and are really walking with him, our heart will grieve when we sin and the Holy Spirit will correct you and put you back on the path. You won't make up excuses to keep sinning. You might for a time, but the Holy Spirit, if you really belong to the Lord, he will chase you down. The Holy Spirit will put people in your life to call you on your stuff. He will make something happen. That's just how it happens. And the, the, real, the real picture is that the believer's heart won't ignore the opportunity to change. Again, you might for a season, but if God owns your heart and God, Jesus is truly the focal point of your life and your heart, that change will come. It's a wonderful and miraculous thing that we get grace from the Lord. It's a wonderful and miraculous thing. And the people that walk with Jesus, I think, all understand that we don't deserve it. You know? I think, honestly, it's like this weird paradox. I think the longer that I walk with Jesus, really, the less I understand his grace. In some in some backward, magnificent ways because the longer I walk with him, the closer I, I get to him, the more I realize how far away I've always been and how far away and how hopelessly lost I would be without his guidance every moment. And I look at it and I'm just I, like, I don't understand. I don't understand the grace. I don't understand why he loves me and why he loves us. I don't understand. 
But he does. And he went through a whole lot of effort to show us. And still goes through a whole lot of effort to show us how much he loves us. You know? I just, it, it does. It doesn't make sense. But again, it's because it's not about me, right? It's not about me. I get to be a part of it, but it's not about me. His goodness, my life doesn't necessarily have to explain his goodness for it to still be there and ever present, you know? So I do have a question for you, believers. What sin or condition of your heart are you rationalizing with today? Or are you struggling with that's, it's, that's a lot easier to rationalize and hold on to than it is to repent and drop it? Like the Jews we've talked about all morning, what area of your heart are you blocking? Are you, are you rationalizing and holding in and fighting tooth and nail every which way to, to, to figure out how to get away from repenting? Repenting, that's, that's Kentucky repenting there. <clears throat> it's okay. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes even with the goodness of God and even knowing that the other side of it is better, sometimes, a lot of times, repenting from stuff is painful and it hurts. You know why? It's because sin is inherently part of who you are. It doesn't want the divorce. It is a struggle. Like, man, it's a struggle. But you know what? As hard as repenting is, I promise you when you do it and you put forth effort, even when you're like a little child, and I've been there, I've been in this exact spot as a pastor, as a believer, and just saying like, God, I've got, I can't, I know that this has to change and I don't know how to change it. I don't know what to change. I'm so broken here. I don't know how to do anything different. But I know, I know what he will do is when you confess that to your close, the people that are in your life, and you say, look, man, I'm struggling. I'm a human. I'm a pastor, sure, but I'm struggling, all right? And you take that to people, and when they hold you accountable, God starts doing stuff, and he starts changing your heart in that sin, and he makes things that were really hard. He, as you put forth the effort, I promise you he doesn't match it. He'll swallow it in his grace and help you move, and it doesn't necessarily mean that with his grace it's still gonna be, it's gonna be easy. But I wanna highlight a little bit of this in Romans chapter six. We're just gonna jump all around the book of Romans today. So starting in verse one, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Another, no, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, 
we too might walk in newness of life. Now, I kind of jumped ahead of myself, but I, I know how hard fighting temptation can be. I mean, there's a reason why in Ephesians, Paul gives you an entire list of armor to pray through, all right? Because as much as God, as much as we belong to Jesus and as much as he promises that he will carry us through and that he will fight our battles, and we know that at the same time, we are still in a war today, right now. If we could see in the spiritual realm, thank goodness that we can't because we couldn't handle it, but if we could even see what's happening in the spiritual realm around this building right now, it would make all of us crawl under a rock out of the fear of just what's happening. And in that, fighting that temptation is hard. But it's something that absolutely has to be done. It has to be done. We have to take the steps to divorce what is plaguing you and what is causing you to rationalize everything in your life that is sin that needs to be gotten rid of. So, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul gives us the a little more, I'll say. He gives us weapons. I say weapons. He gives us ability and knowledge on how to fight all throughout the New Testament and how to surrender to Jesus. But verse 13 in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians is one I think a lot of us probably know, but it's a really important verse. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You've heard it a bunch from a pulpit, I'm sure, but there is no new sin. Sin is predictable. It's the Holy Spirit that might throw you a curveball on that side. Sin, the enemy, is predictable. They might have different facets. It might have, again, it might be a different coat on the mannequin, but it's still the same mannequin. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also, what church? Provide, what? Thanks, Everett. That you may be able to endure it. He'll provide the way of escape. So not only does he give us the strength that's necessary the community that's necessary, the grace that's necessary. He also provides a way of escape. And it really, as I was kind of just searching, trying to tie in things from other places, I came across a quote from John Piper um, that really changed, I mean, as simple as it is, it really just kind of unlocked this side of grace that I hadn't thought about in a long time. And he says, grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. I'm going to read that again. Grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. 
So believer, this morning I want to give us a little bit of time to respond in just a few minutes. But what's stopping you from trusting God's grace and laying down whatever area of your heart or whatever sin you've been struggling with, whether it's a monumental something that the worst person on the planet would tell you you probably needed to drop or where it's something really subtle and it's a heart issue. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a, a condition at home where you know your heart's wrong in a certain area, but darn it, you're right and you know you're right and you got to hold on to it because you're right. It might be something subtle. It might just be, a, might just be something on your heart. It might be something major. But what's, what is keeping you today in taking that and rationalizing all around it because you're right or because this is what justice looks like and I'm going to stick with this or whatever the case may be. What's keeping you holding on to it? So I want you to think about that as I talk to the people in this room who would consider themselves unbelievers. Somebody in this room right now that would say, I either don't know about much about this Jesus or you could honestly come and have a conversation with me and tell me I'm, I'm not a believer. I want to talk to you for a moment. So through this text and last week's text, we learn that God is faithful regardless if anyone else is faithful or not. He will do what he said. He will bring the promises and the good things and everything that he has promised us, he will bring to completion. But on the other hand of that coin is that if you read this book, there's a lot of promise of judgment and there's a lot of promise of condemnation. And if he's faithful in one area, He's certainly faithful in the other area. Fearfully faithful in the other area. So if you don't know Jesus this morning, if you don't know Jesus this morning, you are storing up wrath for yourself in a bank account that will one day be cashed in against you. And the farther and deeper in sin you go, the larger and more terrible the reckoning of that account will be. Just if you catch yourself thinking about the questions that the Jews were asking this morning, and from as best as I could teach it, the, the heart and the intention behind their questions... I would encourage you to, to, to really examine your heart if you agreed with any of their mindsets behind any of it. Because it means, it means your focus isn't on Jesus. It means your focus is, isn't on the king. And that's a fearful place to be. That's a fearful place to be. And I want to talk to you a little bit about grace. It's my favorite part of the sermon. So if you don't understand the grace of God at all, or have the mindset that maybe your life hasn't had any grace in it, you know, you're like, well, you know, pastor, I know, I know God radically redeemed you from drug addiction. I know, I know God's been there for you, but I don't have any of those stories. I don't have any of the grace in my life. 
I'm not trying to get in your face, but I do want to make you think a little bit about a few things. So this week, the pastor team, we all the time are sending quotes or sending little sermon clips or sending movies and just um, all kinds of things. But uh, if, if any one of us finds something that we think is really good and really meaty, uh, we, we send it in our group chat. And uh, I got one sent to me. It was about a teacher who went to China. And he's talking. And he's telling the story. And he said, you know, he, when he got to the place where he was going to teach, there were wooden floors and there were 22 Chinese people that were there. They, they had to ride on a train for 13 hours to get to this three-day, I guess you'd call it a seminar, this three-day teaching. And they're all very cheerful, very upbeat. And he's talking about how when they first started their conversations, he asked him, he said, well, how many, because they're, they're underground church leaders. And he starts talking to him. He says, well, how many people are you guys, are underneath you guys? And so the 22 of them kind of start getting together and kind of counting. And they come back to him and they say, 22 million. Okay? And so that kind of rattled him a little. He said, but he's still, they're, they're sitting on the floor. There's no chairs. And he's got about 16 or 17. I don't remember the number, but he doesn't have enough Bibles to give all 22 of them a Bible. So he hands out what he has. And I forget exactly what scripture, he doesn't really go into that, but Second Peter something. And he sees a lady that takes the Bible and she just hands it to somebody else. And he thought, that's kind of strange. And so anyway, he goes through it and he realizes that this woman has this chapter memorized. Okay? This woman has this chapter memorized, and so which kind of blew his mind. So afterward, he goes up and talks to her and he's like, so do you have... She's like, oh, yeah, I have lots of, lots of chapters memorized, just kind of like it's Tuesday. You know, I have lots of chapters memorized. And he was like, where do you, how, how, where do you get time to do that? And she's like, well, in, in jail. And he's like, okay, so how much time have you spent in jail? And I don't, I don't know that the conversation even elaborated to how much time she had spent in jail. But as he keeps asking, he's like, okay, so what happens if we get caught having this class right now? And they're like, well, you get kicked out of the country. We go to jail for three years. And he's like, okay, so when you're in jail, I guess is when you get this time to memorize all this scripture. And she's like, yeah. And he's like, well, don't they confiscate the Bible? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they confiscate them for sure. We don't really get to keep them very long. And he was like, okay, so how do you, what do you do then? He's like, well, people smuggle them in on, uh, smuggle in chapters written on pieces of paper. And so then he's like, okay, well, don't they confiscate the paper? And she, he said she responded with just big eyes and was just, yeah, that's why you memorize it as fast as you can. And now put that into perspective because there are people that are, riding a train for 13 hours to listen to a man teach them this word and we get it opened up and articulated to us every week. We have access to it constantly. You have every person in this room could take a physical Bible out of the back of a chair and leave with it today. If you need one, please do. But I say that to say if you think you don't have grace in your life, you're sitting in an air-conditioned building, you get the word of God taught to you every day. You have the words of life 
attainable to you at any time. There's so much grace in this room. Not even me trying to teach you about it fully understands it. And so unbeliever, there's more grace on your life right now than you can possibly fathom. The fact that you are here today, as corny as that sounds, I don't care if you are here today and you hear my voice, it is grace for your life. It's grace that, did you, did you know that there are six billion people on the planet and roughly one billion of them have little to no access of this gospel? It means no public churches, no Bibles, no one to open up the word and teach them if they're fortunate enough to have a Bible. I've heard other stories in the Middle East of of people that have to hike three miles into the desert and hide a Bible under a rock. And it's the one Bible they have for two or three hundred people and when they get it and they open up and they read, they feast upon it like their life depends on it. And we're drowning in resource. So unbeliever, if you feel like you don't have any grace in your life, I wanna challenge you to think about that. It might not seem like grace to you right now. But hopefully, one day, you'll be on the side of grace where you look back and all you can do is thank Jesus. But there is an opportunity that you might be on the other side and you just think like, I I fear, I fear for you on that day. I mean, you hear it in churches all the time, all the time. I mean, we hear it so much, we're almost dead to it. But I mean, do you realize that it is open and available to you? And there is an opportunity, the same God that I read out of chapter 7 in Daniel, the same God who dwells in inapproachable light, who sits in a throne that 10,000 angels are serving him, Do you want to be on the loving end of that God as a father or on the judgment end of that God as a righteous judge condemning you for the sin that you rationalized and continued to walk in? Because I promise you, whether in 50 years, whether 60, 70 years, some people are young in here, whether you go there or he's coming here, as Paul Washer says, it really makes no difference. So I want to take a minute and tell you the gospel of Jesus. So there is a God in heaven. We've established that. And he is perfect. He's the perfect judge. And whether you are, it doesn't matter. If you hear my voice without the blood of Jesus Christ saturating your life, you are condemned. You are condemned. I can't say it any clearer than that. It is truly life and death. It is truly life and death. And there was a gap. If God is truly the righteous judge that we know that he is, and we are truly 
putrid, sin-corrupted creatures that we know we are, how can he forgive us and still be the righteous judge that we know he is? It's like if you're a judge and you're sitting in a courtroom and there's a guy that you know just committed murder. The judge can't just say, well, you're free to go, man. I'm feeling extra forgiven today. There's no justice there. You would immediately look at the judge and say, he's unjust. Well, you have that logic because God put that logic in your mind from the beginning. So the crime was committed. It's there. Maybe you look at your life and say, hey, I'm not, as, I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good dude. No, I don't, I don't walk with your Jesus, but I'm a pretty good dude. I got this and this and this going on. Maybe so. Maybe you don't have a tremendous amount. Maybe you're not a, a serial murderer or a rapist or a con artist. Maybe you're not the epic level of sin. But I promise you, deep-seated in your heart, if you don't know Jesus, you are making yourself the God of your own life. And that is an abomination because you're not the God of your own life. You are not the God of your own life. Jesus Christ is the God of your life. Whether you love him or not, he will be. You will bow before the king when God sets him on his throne and puts the crown upon his head. You will bow. And again, as Paul Washer said, you'll either bow out of the grace that has been given to you or you will bow because your kneecaps will be broken by the one who rules the nations with a rod of iron. And Jesus came in and he stepped in and he paid the price for you that you might live. There is a way between being a corrupt sinner and a righteous judge and his name is Jesus and he's here for you today. We can celebrate that. And so, I want you, if you don't know this Jesus, or maybe you think you've known this Jesus, I want to encourage you to shake off any junk. Maybe you've gone to church your whole life. Maybe you play on the worship team, whatever the case may be. It doesn't matter. I don't care. If you don't know this Jesus, talk to somebody today. If you want to, I will sit with you here and I'll call in work tomorrow. We'll stay all night. It's that important. Somebody in this building will walk with you and talk with you and pray together so that you could know Jesus. So I'm not going to ask you to pray a prayer. But if there's anybody in this room that says, hey, I, whether I've been in church my whole life and today I've realized that I, I'm really not walking with Jesus like I thought I was, or whether you can just be bold and say, I've never walked with Jesus, but the way you've articulated it today, but just the way the Holy Spirit, not me, has articulated it today, I want to know this Jesus. I would ask right now that you would raise your hand very uncomfortably. We're not head bowing and eye closing. I want you to be uncomfortable. There's still 
there's still time in the season of God's grace. We are living in the season where we have the full canon of God's scripture. We have the full, we have the full knowledge of God's plan. And we also have the grace of God upon us right now that we can make those decisions. So I would encourage you to read this book like your life depends on it every day. Every day. It's not that hard. So we're going to worship. I'll be down front. Pastor Cody's here. Pastor Johan's here. There's a deacon team. There's going to be a prayer team. And back to the believers. I challenge you to shake off whatever it is that you're rationalizing to keep in your life. I promise you anything that you grind and strive to shake off in the pursuit of Jesus, I promise you it will not come back void. I promise you it'll be worth it.